Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein, and we tend to do that in the world of comedy and, and sports and music and authors and books and and uh, the like. And today we're dipping into a world that I have great respect for, which is the world of higher ed. And as soon as you say the term higher ed today, that is interpreted a lot of different ways. But uh, I did youth ministry for years, and I've often said that I think those first two years outside of high school are as significant as any two years of a person's life. And on a personal level, I've got a son heading off to college this weekend for the first time. So I know what that world is is going to be like, I guess, soon enough. But uh, we have on today a, a guest who's been easy to work with. Uh, his school has been in the news over this span of 2023. Kevin Brown, the president of Asbury University. Welcome, Kevin. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Kevin, I just want to start off, you know, I always like to make the connection. So I was at Asbury a week after things kind of broke out and, you know, you guys went very mainstream, certainly in Christian culture, people had their eyeballs on you guys, but I came February 15th, the Wednesday after things kind of started happening there. And you got up and spoke at the beginning of chapel. You didn't say, I don't think you said your name. You definitely didn't say you were president of Asbury. I was super impressed, and I told my buddies, I said, man, this guy's really sharp. I wonder, wonder who he is. And then later I find out, I think after the session, we're outside killing time before we did things around campus, and I find out you're the president of the university. I'm like, wow, he didn't do anything to let anybody know that. He was humble servant, modest, no attention drawn to himself. And uh, everybody I've talked to says that is you. Hmm. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well... That's certainly kind. I, I will say, yeah, I, I I appreciate that perspective, but there were some amazing men and women in the room, and I, I think there's a tendency to look at one individual and say, wow, look at what they did, or look at what they said, or look at how they shepherded this, and the reality is always more complex, right? And mm-hmm. uh, there were just lots of people challenging each other to make judgments and decisions that were going to be God honoring, facilitate what was unfolding, and then obviously maintain a focus on students and their experience and what was happening for them. So I think I was just kind of caught up in in all of that. Again, I'm super thankful for people making kind comments and whatnot, but it it was as cliche as it sounds, it was it was a group effort by a lot of incredible men and women that I was very thankful were in the room. Well, and another person that really stood out to people, and I'm blanking on her name right now, but you're, I think it was student body president. What's the young woman's name? Um, Allison. Yeah. yeah. I remember when she was on, um, and I'm going to blank on his name, Glenn um, used to be on, what was it? CNN or Fox or whatever. And then he went uh, Glenn Beck. She was on Glenn Beck. I happened to catch that. And you could just tell Glenn Beck was blown away by her, her humility, uh, her as a leader, um, so on and so forth. I think with her and, I mean, you've obviously been around longer, one of the terms and one of the pictures that, that people might be familiar with that kind of, I think, stand out about you is you're kind of that Jim Collins level five leader, he would call it, you know, which the number one thing that is depicted there is humility. Um, what, what do you do to kind of fan into the flame of that? I mean, it'd be easy as you've moved steps along the way and your wife uh, now works at the university and it'd, it'd be easy to kind of ride this wave of ego and, hey, we've made it, we've arrived, we're kind of a big deal in Wilmore, Kentucky, and nothing about you says that to me. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think if you spent more time with me, you'd see why I'm laughing. You know, the, the really cool thing about this community, it's just the way people are. It's it's in the water. And I've described February as kind of an uncoordinated mm-hmm. humility. So, for example, our our advancement department, they raise money. 
they had a quick discussion when things started ramping up with these services like, hey, do not ask anyone for money. Just shut down our gift officers. Don't go out on the road and actually just go over and serve people. We never had a discussion about that. There was never some kind of university decision. That was their instinct. Our marketing department, same thing. They were like, do not post social media. We're going to shut that down. Um, we're not going to try to draw attention to ourselves. We're going to just let this unfold. There was never a discussion along those lines. There was never a discussion about, should we prioritize Gen Z? Should we prioritize these students who are in front of us? It was just in the water. It was just this shared instinct that people had. And so in that sense, it's it's easy. It's easy to, to kind of fade into those instincts uh, and those priorities because they've always been there and they've been established by just really godly men and women in the community that I'm, I'm really thankful for. Well, see, what, what's interesting to me is, is you know, when, when I do research and prep for interviews like this, people don't get to see all the behind the scenes stuff. And one of the things that was interesting when we first had contact it was very interesting and clear to me that you did not use the word revival. You used the word awakening to me when we talked about some of what we would discuss and, you know, not to be critical of other people in light of what happened there at Asbury, but there was definitely places and in spaces where folks were quick on their end with something going on on their campus or, you know, a church or whatever, you know, like, Hey, there's revival breaking out here or whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, that's a handful of people praying one night for an hour. I mean, let's don't just throw that word around like crazy. And, and while I saw places maybe getting loosey goosey with that word, you were not using that word at all, it seemed like. So maybe speak to that. And if we're being brutally honest here, nobody's listening to this conversation. Did you get a little frustrated at all? Like, man, people, other places are throwing that word around like it's nothing. And we're trying to really protect that term. Not necessarily, probably because I didn't have that much time to pay attention to how others were narrating what, what was happening on their campuses. I was just thrilled something was happening on their campus. Mm -hmm. Asbury's had several revival events and the most famous being 1970. In fact, a couple of years ago, we did a 50 year celebration of that. So as I said, it's in the water. And so on a very practical level, if we were to use that term, I think it immediately draws a comparison to what happened 50 years ago. And that, that, gives some shape to what's happening that that gets internalized and and enacted and i don't think that's what we wanted to do like i i think there was a genuine like something's happening let's give order to it and then let's just step back and see what unfolds and not try to to name it and early on one of the the discussions there was like a leadership group and we were talking and describing this and I really appreciated this discussion in, in John 9, you know, the, the blind beggar and Jesus heals the blind beggar so that he can see. And this, this is a real scandal. And he's brought in and uh, questioned, and they're questioning him on whether Jesus himself was a sinner. And the blind beggar says, well, I don't know whether he was a sinner or not. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that I was blind and now I can see. Amen. And so to me, there was a parallel there, a loose parallel. Like what, what is this called? Is it a revival, a renewal, awakening, outpouring? I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that 50,000 hungry hearted people came to a space to seek Jesus. And I know there was a movement among us. And I know that God showed up in a way that we could never have imagined or, or manufactured mm -hmm. on our own. I know that we're not going to be the same. So that's what I know. And I'd rather focus on those yeah. things that we can say with confidence and clarity, as opposed to, you know, what's the right language. The other thing we have, you know, we have Bible teachers and theologians, we have the seminary across the street. So I know these words are uh, kind of filled with, with theological significance as well. And so well, revivals do this and they function this way and they mean this and awakenings do this and they function this way. And so what's a word that I think bypasses some of those nuances just to simply say hungry hearts are gathering and that hunger is being met and outpouring 
certainly sounds appropriate yeah. and descriptive of, of what was happening. You know, it's funny. I love music and, and wish I had some talent in that arena, but I don't. But I, I think you said a lot of stuff in that answer that a whole lot of musicians could take and write a lot of great songs about. So appreciate your heart <laughs> and how you responded there. So let's jump in. Uh, one of the things we always want to do is hear kind of like your three minute testimony, Kevin, how you came to Jesus. Tell us that story. Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky and appreciated your recent discussion with Dave Stone, Southeast Christian church. I was baptized there in 1986 by Bob Russell the church had a few hundred people there at that time. And now I think it's the fourth largest church in the United States. Everyone in my family is an educator. My dad taught at the University of Louisville and I played basketball. I went to college to play hoops at the University of Indianapolis. So a couple of hours away. And yeah, I think I was one of those guys, you know, I'd pray before a meal and I'd go to church when, when it was convenient, but really uh, really set my faith aside. And I think there was a lot of like, who am I and who do I want to be and how do I want to live my life? And do you, do you remember strength shoes? Uh, those like platform shoes back in the nineties. No, I don't think uh, I do. Yeah. They, they were really popular for like five minutes. Um, <laughs> it was like elevated, the front side of the shoe was elevated. And so if you worked out in them, it was supposed to really build your calves and that kind of thing. Well, this put inordinate pressure on the top of your feet and actually ended up breaking both of my feet on, on top, really as a function of those shoes. And so I had to sit out half a season in basketball and then redshirt another season. And it was like overnight, there was this full-fledged identity crisis. Like, mm. who was I? I'd only known myself as a basketball player. And there were just men and women in that community who just chose to invest in me. And that, that was not a feature of, of that university system. And I say that because I do think it's a feature of schools like Asbury and, and other Christian colleges and universities, uh, but they just did it anyway. I, I, there was a pastor who was just, she was so instrumental in my life. There was a guy that was like, hey, we're gonna read scripture on Thursday mornings at big boy during breakfast mm. i got pulled into a men's bible study love that just people investing and it just it absolutely changed everything and so there was just a, a time where i just really recommitted my life to just say this this is not only who i am it's who i want to be and i want to give myself to the lord and what he has to do in my life and kind of let go of these things so i worked in banking for about a decade, uh, but began making overtures towards higher education, adjunct teaching, graduate work. And I started teaching at Anderson University in 2009 in central Indiana. And then I started teaching here at Asbury in 2013, got to come back home to Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's home. My parents are still in Louisville. My sister and her husband are there as well. And then started in this role in 2019. So maybe along your career path, are there a couple places, maybe like at Anderson and then maybe in the business department there at Asbury or somewhere else, that there were a couple linchpin things that God did in your life that you're like, I needed to be in that role at just that time to learn this about Jesus or grow in this way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I could name so many, and it's hard to elevate the significance of one of those moments over others. The big thing, though, is just... I, when I started teaching, I had these naive ideas that I'm going to go into a classroom and just say, you know, something so profound and a student's just going to rethink their <laughs> life and then make these new commitments, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it's just completely naive. And what I learned was the influence actually occurs outside the classroom. It occurs when you have coffee with that student, when you invite them into your household, when Amen. you go to their theater event, when you go to that sporting event really just burrowing into the fabric of their life. And people did that for me on our best day. That is the work that we're involved in. And it's really just given me a different conception of this generation, Gen Z. And especially in February, I just, I have this newfound, like I'm really excited for this group and for what they're doing now and what they're doing in the future, will do in the future, what God will do through them. Why do you think what you're saying there, Kevin, this is going off script a bit. Why 
is that so hard? I was talking to our youth pastor the other day who's pretty good at the relational side of ministry. And I told him, I said, you know what? I, I just encourage him to keep doing that. I challenged him as the youth pastor of our church to really push the volunteer leaders of yeah. our church that way. I said, because, you know, in ministry, it's so easy for people to talk about relationships. Some people don't and think it's about speaking or it's, you know, in youth ministry, young lifey type circles, it's about being great at skits or being funny, or it's about, you know, whatever from a platform standpoint. But I'm like, I feel like in ministry world, the church world, we still get that way wrong and don't appreciate because I, I I'm of the philosophy you can do a lot of things poorly and if you're relationally strong and you do the things you talked about that's part of your fabric as you said you take you go to people's games you take them out for coffee you meet them for lunch you do about the off the turf kind of things yeah. it'll show but if you only can do the upfront things and there's no relational side it's going to stink at some point what 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 do you, what is what, why do you think that's part of our culture? Because maybe I'm wrong and it's just me, but I feel like I see it everywhere I go where people just don't fully buy into that relational side of things. Yes. Well, first of all, amen to everything that you're saying because I, I, I guess I work with young people. You could say that, and the times I've been asked about this generation, I try to reinforce that point. They don't care about propositional arguments from men and women that are older than them. They don't care about advice. I, I heard someone say, opinions are what you get when you drain wisdom of its empathy. I thought that was a brilliant quote. And I think a lot of young people get opinions and they pointed out, this is the most marketed to generation in human history. So mm -hmm. if we're not relationally involved with them uh, to, to fund the currency of the words that we use, they don't care. And so it, it's important. Students need to know, young people need to know, we care about them, we believe in them, we're coming beside them. Otherwise, they just hear noise. They hear, mm -hmm. they hear a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal yeah. in Paul's language. But as far as why that's hard, this is this is Kevin Brown. I'm I'm not a you know sociologist, but I think it's because it's so inefficient. And we are so governed by inexplicably, uh, or not inexplicably, unwittingly, by norms and values of efficiency. And I am too. I'm so guilty. Like, seek and destroy. How can I do this as efficiently and quickly as possible? Mm. And relationships are zigzaggy. They're nonlinear. Yep. They're fits and starts. And they require investments that do not accord with these sensibilities of efficiency that have been so habituated into our psyche as to how we're supposed to operate with one another. I mean, even, even some of the language like spending time or mm. social capital uh, investing in, and I use, I use all those words as well, but it's interesting that even we use financial nomenclature to describe the interactions that we have with one another just says something about how deeply woven this is into our own imagination. And so I, I think, and I heard a professor say this a few weeks ago, we had a discussion on AI mm -hmm. and what does this mean for an institution like ours? And they said, we just, we have to reinforce relationships are inefficient, but they're valuable. And we have to raise that value up so high so that we're willing to be inconvenienced. We're willing to trade various efficiencies in order to have real and meaningful relationships with each other and with this younger generation. And I think that's going to be integral to any kind of influence we have on them in the future. And what's so tough, I, I was telling our youth pastor, like, I think it's interesting that, you know, I've seen people with all four of my kids, I have a 20-year-old, 18-year-old, 16-year-old, all boys, 14-year-old girl, and someone, a mentor, a youth group leader, whoever will come up and say, hey, I want to spend time with you. And then they'll try, they don't really try to make it happen. It falls through or whatever. I'm like, you would have been better with my kid to not say a word. But if you try to get together <laughs> and then you don't, or you don't follow through, I mean, like, if we keep using these terms, like people want to be seen and people want to be heard, you're doing anything, yeah. but you are working against that in, in reality. And I can imagine what you're saying. I like how you said it's kind of something we just drink in the water down here, the humility. Yeah. It just seems like there's probably a relational thing. Um, what has continued on in that light, maybe, since you, things got kind of shut down there? And was that early March, actually, or was it late February? Uh, when you say shut down, when you guys just kind of uh, said, we're taking a break and, and you know, we're not continue to have people just oh. show up on campus. 
Yeah. So I think a couple of things were were going on. One, I I became increasingly aware. So let me let me back up. That very first day, that Wednesday, February 8th, people have asked me, when did you know something was different? And I would say that afternoon. And I, I was actually in the back of chapel. You could just tell, like, this is different. And the, the chapel service that morning was as as ordinary. And I don't mean that as an insult. It was just really ordinary. Mm-hmm. And I emphasize that because I think we're very speaker-centric or music-centric. Like, what did the speaker say? What did the worship convey that led people to have this response? Well, maybe maybe there were some things, but there was just there was something else. And so I was in the back. I was just, I was crying. And one of my colleagues, she was walking up the aisle and our eyes caught one another. She was crying. And we just kind of looked at each other like we knew. And then a faculty member who I know, he was walking up the other side and our eyes caught with one another. He was crying. Mm. And we didn't, the three of us, none of us said anything. We just knew something's happening. Yeah. So that was, that was really, that was really special. But as time moved on, and more and more people came, I began to just think more and more about the mission of our institution. And I thought of that in conjunction with others. In fact, we had a meeting with all of the key leaders of the school the day, I think, before you came, uh, that Tuesday on the 14th, and how we think about this. And it was actually, it was a really, it was a really beautiful meeting. But recognizing that we, we have an obligation to the mission of our institution and to the students here. And so how do we maintain, how do we foster and and continue to nurture and what was happening before us? Uh, because it's gonna be historic, it's gonna outlive us, it's special. And yet, how do we maintain the experience and continuity, safety, security of our students who are already here and prioritize their experience? So that was that was an important consideration. And on a very practical level, this is a fruit of our mission. It's not our mission. <laughs> like uh, like our accrediting body doesn't hold us accountable to revival like events, you yeah. know, or, or or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The so, board didn't check it off at a board retreat and say, OK, Kevin, you get approved for two more years on your contract. Right. Exactly. But second, I think the arc of events like that are are always out. In other words, we would be unfaithful at some point if we were seeking to perpetually localize what was happening. How do we just keep getting people? Mm-hmm. And I've used this metaphor several times because it was so helpful and we talked about it then, the metaphor of fire, that a fire is brightest when it's tallest. But, and, and in that sense, we, we had a massive multi-week spiritual bonfire. A fire is brightest when it's tallest, but a fire is hottest when it is simmering down into smoldering embers. That's when the heat is greatest. Wow. And so could it be that even though it looked like things were quote unquote dying down, maybe things were really getting hot at that point. And in that sense, to invite the, the people that came and visited, like yourself, there were 284 universities or colleges that were represented of people that visited us. For them to go back to those spaces, mm-hmm. for people in ministries, ministries from other countries, that they are these kind of torchbearers, if you will, to, to follow the metaphor, to take these embers into their own spaces. That to me was just a really exciting, beautiful yeah. imagery. Uh, this was not about Asbury. It was not about Wilmore. It was not about Hughes Auditorium. It's about people are hungry and God is meeting their hunger. And he's doing it in this punctuated way uh, that's different than what we've experienced. And so let's foster that, but let's send that out. Let's not possess that. Let's let's not claim that because it's not ours to claim, yeah. but rather how do we as faithfully as we can be stewards uh, to play our role in the promotion of something way, way, way bigger than us. You know, it was interesting. So we talked to a grad student guy who's involved in the athletic facility area 
a female student right when we got there. And then this Olivia, who I'm, we mentioned offline, who really left an mm-hmm. impact on us towards, I don't know if it was like the track or somewhere, quite a ways away. And with all three of them, there was definitely this sense of like, yes, this is an inconvenience for us. Like we can't even park in front of our dorms anymore, but God's doing something. So why would we want to poo-poo that in any way? And just that kind of humility, bigger picture, God's faithfulness, wherever there's going to be fruit. And that was just a spirit of the whole camp because clearly people, you know, let's face it. I went there because there was something going on. It was worth seeing it. I didn't want to miss it. And that's probably why most people went. Maybe motives were a little bit more jacked up than that, but there was selfish reasons why I went to see and taste something God's doing. But that spirit of you guys was just so impressive. And and I want to ask you as a man, Kevin, as a man, as a child of God, and even as a family man, were there some, were there a couple stories you could share where God really did something during that time in your life that you're like, man, I'm, I'm a better follower of Jesus. I'm a better man. I'm a better family man, husband, father, whatever, because of something specific, a couple of specific things from that time. I think as a leader, the perpetual temptation is to put your thumb into things. And one of our challenges in Christian higher ed is where do I need to make decisions and judgments as a fiduciary, to use the language of the school, its mission and its resources? And where do I need to be dependent upon uh, the people around me and dependent upon this larger narrative that our institution is embedded within? And I think those are hard judgments to make. And it's been a very difficult period of time for the United States. It's been a difficult time in a lot of different industries. It absolutely has been for higher education and it absolutely has been for Christian higher education. And Asbury is not immune to those forces. So it's been a challenging couple of years. I think the the biggest thing that when I think about what this meant to me and how I understood it was just to see that there are just much, much larger things that are so far beyond my own overtures, my own motions towards mm. trying to accomplish or achieve things. That that was just so clear to me. The other thing was, I know that there are common stories and there, there are hundreds, if not thousands of like, I came and the Lord did this in my heart. I was changed or a hunger was met. I love those stories. One of the things for me that is a little different than that story was just the power of unity mm. among God's people. So I, I've i said, I don't think there's anything special about Asbury or, or Hughes Auditorium or even 2023 in the sense, they're not special in the sense that God could, could do something like that at any place, anytime, anywhere. There is something special about the people, the people who have this kind of elevated spiritual temperature that have a collective imagination. One person said, you know, Asbury is like a riverbed. When the water comes, it knows where to flow. Mm -hmm. And I really, really liked that statement. And then just a willingness at great self-expenditure to make room at the table, to be hospitable for others. And to me, that that is just one of the most significant stories. I will never be the same uh, just seeing people come together and display the kind of collective godliness, collective Mm. hospitality and goodwill. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. And, you know, it's 2023. We can find on Hulu or Netflix or whatever these these documentaries about massive church failures yeah. or things that we've gotten wrong. Sure, the, those things are out there. We have to give a critical eye to that and make sure we don't repeat those things. There is no such thing as a, a negligible uh, moral failure within God's kingdom. And those things are really serious. But, but <laughs> they're just... There are too many good things. Mm -hmm. There's there are too many for for the salt to lose its saltiness uh, of just seeing just some incredible work of people that that doesn't necessarily make the news or whatever. And that's what blew me away. That's that's when the world was watching. I'm like, I want them to see this picture of the best of what God's community can be. And I think they saw it not because of 
anything I did, not because of incentives that were offered, not because of our leadership structure, or again, any kind of direction. There was no planning committee or anything. Hmm. Uh, it's just the way that the people were and the spirit at work within, within the people. That's, that's, what I, that's what I want to be evident. That's the story I want to tell. Wow, love. Uh, I feel like every soundbite you have is something that needs to be tweeted. Is a great quote on Twitter. So, <laughs> what? Um, let me ask you this, and, and get as honest and as real and personal as you want to this. But you had to see spiritual warfare step up for you, for the university, whatever. Where? Where is a particular area where you felt the spiritual warfare during that time really ramp up, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, Satan's coming heavy, hard right here." You know, certainly fatigue. People are really tired and. This leadership team that kind of emerged, as I said, there were some Asbury people there, there were some other ministries, there were some other pastors, and we just kind of formed. And one of the, the themes that just got repeated was we need to have an unoffendable spirit mm-hmm. because it would have been really easy to be offended. I, I think it was actually kind of incredible. I, I think I know enough stories to know that event could have been event. That's, that's not a good word those two weeks could have been easily politicized. Um, it would have been able to kind of put some political narratives around that. That just didn't, yeah. that didn't emerge. There, there was uh, uh, a measles case that was discovered on the very last day we did, or maybe I think it was the day after we discovered someone had been there that had the measles. And it was like the Kentucky health department. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many people were on a call. They were like, this is going to be terrible. This is the most contagious virus known to humankind. Nothing ever happened. Wow. I mean, it it's a miracle. Uh, like no, nothing ever came of that. I think there would have been an opportunity several times for folks to step up and and institutional identities to harden, but that never happened. There was just such a spirit of working with one another. So I think all those things were present. I could feel them, but but they never came to fruition. Mm. And I'm not entirely sure how. I couldn't speak to why didn't that happen other than to say almost just something supernatural about the moment that we were in and the the spirit among the people who were there was just was just so powerful yeah that people were safe you might recall during that time there was a campus shooting i believe at michigan state yeah. an active shooter a friend of mine she's a president at another cccu school they had found a student who had planned to do an, an active shooting event luckily that was thwarted at the time but you know, it's on the back of my mind. You you have a lot of people visiting, and you don't know. You don't know what the intentions are. So it was just it was just really incredible. There there are always opportunities for conflict among one another. There were opportunities for something external. There are opportunities for narratives to get superimposed on the event and harm it from that standpoint. I, I'm sorry, I keep saying event. Um, no, I, I yeah, word, I know what you're saying. Word. Uh, but those things just never emerged. And I, I think that's because, you know, there there it was just a perpetual, uh, I think of the psalmist saying, I lift my eyes to the hills, that there, yeah. there was just a constant sense of reverence of of what was happening. And uh, so much so that our, our humanness and our thumbprints perhaps couldn't get in the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that true humility, true desire and seeing it play out of unity and just there was no force in it. There was no trying to be, manipulate this, make it happen. You just felt that. I mean, we were there about three and a half, four hours. We felt it the whole time. Like it's just God's protecting you guys, keeping it. And that's why I think those things got thwarted. Let's uh, let's do a quick right turn here and let's do some fun, light, quick hitting things. So people know some other right. sides to Kevin other than just February, 2023. So Kevin, what was your, what is your favorite back in the day, childhood snack or cereal? Well, I always ate cereal every night and sometimes I still do. Uh, but my parents would buy this like generic Ego waffles thing. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the waffle that you could toast. Sure. And so 
that was hands down my my favorite snack. Some some Eggo waffles, whatever so, their generic alternative was. So, did you like the uh, the waffle uh, cereal they had there for a while? You know, I never did that. Oh. Uh, my parents were amazing about the food they got, but we were not a family that got the special cereals. sugary cereal. Yeah. Uh, you know, my cool friends, their parents <laughs> got them that. But, uh, yeah. You know what's funny? I've yeah, gotten we got grape nuts. There you go. Well, you know what's funny? The older I get, the more I get geeked out by these kind of got some flavor to them, but healthier cereals. I'm like, I wish I could transfer my like of healthier cereals to every other area of my life with not <laughs> Krispy Kreme donuts or places like that. So um, what is your yes. favorite book you most like or would like to gift to other people? That That's a hard question. I, I, uh, there's so many different books. I will say this. if If students ask me, What's a book I recommend? I typically recommend, because I'm thinking particularly for that age, a guy named Richard Taylor. He's a late Nazarene professor. I tell them he's the best author you've never heard of, mm. but he has a book called The Disciplined Life. And I've read that book numerous times. It was super relevant when I was younger and it's just as relevant today. And so I think anyone in college or going out of college should read that. If it's history, I love Candace Millard and Eric Larson books. Mm. Um, theology, I will always start with Augustine. And then philosophy, I'd, I'd say Michael Sandel, who's at Harvard. And he has, and, and then Simone Weil, who is a 20th century, she, she was in Europe, author, thinker, incredible, just, just brilliant. I know people who really like that part of when I ask these questions to go figure out some books. You just kept it, some people busy for a long time. So <laughs> so let's say the Brown family is heading south, and let's say you're going on vacation to Florida somewhere, and uh, you kind of know, Kevin, when you want to stop and when you want to get food or whatever, and then somebody's got to the bathroom or you're in traffic about 10 minutes too early, and you're like, oh, well, we got to stop, and we're not doing it twice, so we're stopping right now. And let's say all three of these places are on the exit sign. Now, the one's out west, so we're going to move it east. But you have to choose between McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, or In-N-Out Burger. I'm going to assume in your travels you've been to an In-N-Out Burger. Where would you go? The answer is where we will minimize conflict among our three kids. I, I have eaten at some – I've held my nose and eaten at some bad places <laughs> if there's – Harmony in the car. So I would elevate harmony. So I would choose the one where everyone would say, yep, that one, that one works. And is it different any and all times? Or is it for those three places, is one I'm going to line up better than the others? Chick-fil-A would probably work the best of those three. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I love the comedian, Nate Bargatze. And he mm -hmm. cracks me up because he is always talking about McDonald's. Like he loves McDonald's and he goes, yeah, I, I love processed food. And, uh, you know, hearing him talk about McDonald's, if he ever came on here, I'd have to change that question. Cause anybody knows him knows he loves McDonald's. So let's say either as a family or you and your wife are doing a date night or something like that. What is a movie that if you were to come across it, it's pulling you in every time and it's keeping you. I don't know if I do this for a date night. Hoosiers, the movie Hoosiers. I, I just, there is something hypnotic and special. And uh, I, during COVID, I asked my boys if they had seen that and they were like, no. So I showed the preview. I started crying during the preview. Wow. Uh, even. So I, I just, uh, that, that is a really special movie to me. My dad's from Indiana. I spent a while there obviously. And so it, it, it's a great basketball story, but it's just some of those wonderful small town Indiana values that I really appreciate. Yeah. So great. Film. So my son, who we talked about off air before we got on here, he got his basketball team got to play in the gym his freshman year of high school. They did a like every four year deal. And it was funny. I was the announcer for that game because I announced half the games that year. So it's kind of cool. But like I'm sitting with my oh, legs wow. sideways because it's so tight in those quarters. And nobody today's playing in that gym without the history of it because it was definitely old and it is missing some contemporary sides to it, but the feeling they sold, you know, shirts and hoodies and stuff. And of course we bought some stuff. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty special moment, but yeah, what a, what a great, you know, setup that is. And, and uh, when I, when I was doing youth ministry years ago, I'm 53. So this is back in uh, like Reggie Miller's heyday. We would go, to, we yeah. would take kids to the Pacer games and one year, maybe two years, they did these, you know, these great intro videos when they'd announced the starting lineup. And they had this video of like this kid with like his dad 
you know, throwing it up really hard with two hands onto the barn hoop. And they'd have some, a few, a few other images and they'd say in 49 other States, it's basketball. I'm getting goosebumps right now at my legs, like nobody's business. And there'd be a picture of Reggie shooting a three and it would say, but this is Indiana. Yeah. Oh, did you go back yeah. then to any Pacer games? And, and do you remember what I'm talking about at all? I so do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from market square arena, all yep. the way to banker's life today. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And Reggie was just, you know, it, it's funny when you think about like a Bart star, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, those kind of guys would like the Packers or an athlete or coach really identifies with the town. I will always argue Reggie Miller with the Pacers. He just, yeah. and he's a California kid like him and Cheryl Miller. I mean, there's no reason why he should have meant so much to Indianapolis, but he just did. Yeah. They loved him yeah. and he loved, he loved the city, oh, yeah, Circle City. hundred percent. So lastly, here's a fun question. I don't think I've done this one before. But I'm going to do this one with you. Kevin, who would play you in a movie? Oh, man. Someone bald, lanky, <laughs> and goofy. Uh, whoever fits that bill would would uh, be most eligible to play me. We'll start the, we'll start the uh, marketing for that by those words that you used and see who uh, sets up to do that, right? Right, right. Let's get back to Asbury stuff from February. How, what have you done and how have you guys kind of been able to figure things out? Yeah, obviously we're going to have some haters and you kind of alluded to where Satan tried to do some stuff and, you know, super generic there, but, but uh, those think kind of things were mostly thwarted or whatever, but how have you guys maybe ramped up and said, we're going to really be true to the gospel, not go astray where it's so easy to do kind of facing mission drift and keep focused on the gospel from pre-February 2023, that season, and now going forward, new class, probably already on campus, aren't they? Uh, they are coming in this week, and tomorrow we'll have our freshman there you um, go. kind of welcome welcome service. So very exciting time of the year. So how do you stay true to the gospel with everything and not allow it to go astray with everything? Yeah, something I share with all the new staff and faculty that, that come in and share in public when I can as well. It's, it's that C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, where he said, when a boat goes out to sea, there are three questions that it's answering. One, how do you avoid hitting other boats? Which is a good question. How do you avoid sinking? But he said, the third question is fundamental to the first two. Why are you out there? Why do you exist? And how silly it is that we might even give attention to those first two questions, if we haven't properly settled the third. And so I think that always has to be in the background, the running script. Why are we doing what we're doing? And if that's not clear, then, then our mission statement is we exist to exist, which is not a good mission statement. And so this is an institution that begins with epistemic claims about reality because of our commitment to traditional Christian doctrine. And we want to start there. And we want that to inform every dimension of what happens in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom as well. And so we say this is a becoming story mm. for students, that it's it's deep thought. We want them to think, well, it's effective service, it's ordered love, it's holistic practice. It's it's every dimension. Uh, the The Better way we describe that is we want you to think well, serve well, love well, and live well. And we we think that is a, a full scriptural approach uh, to how we think about organizing ourselves as a school, holding these values steadfastly, but lovingly expressing them so that our students can go out and be salt and light in the world. And so, yeah, those pressures are there to, to kind of bend and contort. And I think we're always trying to bring our convictions to bear against uh, a given period of time that we find ourselves within. Again, the way I described that, the, the methods and the modalities by which we fulfill our mission are changing. They're always changing, but the mission doesn't change. This is the mission. This is, this is why our boat is out there. This is why we exist. So I think we just have to continually tell ourselves that story. And, you know, it's interesting, just to give another example of this, we do a community climate survey every couple of years. And there was a really great discussion that a group had. One of the questions, one of the original questions was, what would you like to see changed at this institution? And I, I don't know if that's the right question because sometimes it reflects more of our preferences 
than it does the mission of the school. So for example, if my church asked me, what would I like to see changed at church? Well, I want, I want the coffee to be a bold roast. And, uh, <laughs> and gosh, the worship music is really loud. And there's a lot of time in between services. And, you know, I can go on and on with all these kind of idiosyncratic things. That's not, that's not really the right question. The right question is, what does a 21st century expression of the New Testament way look like? How does our church do that? And what are some opportunities that we have to do that better? That's not a preferences question. That is, a, what are we doing in service to this vision? And it's the same thing, I think, at Asbury. It's not, what do I want? Uh, it's not about me. It's about what is a vision of a school that takes the monikers Christian and university seriously. What does that look like? What are we doing today that actually contributes to that? And what do we need to do differently so that we can do that better? That's the question. And I think as long as we're constantly pushing one another towards that, we're going to be on mission. Wow. So you said something about story, their process of becoming what is Kevin mm-hmm. Brown becoming? What does that look like from an apprentice of Jesus, a uh, discipler mentality? Who are you becoming? I hope I'm becoming more like Christ. You know, I just, it was interesting, Jeff. I was walking over here with someone. Uh, I was in a different building. We were talking about this podcast. And we were saying, you know, you always get sometimes a, a really good question, but it's acceptable to say the answer is, I don't know. And I said, isn't it interesting? The older we get, the more we realize, I don't know, is Amen. acceptable. And you think it'd be the other way around. Like, we, totally. we get wiser. We, we accumulate more information as we get older. We should have all the answers, right? And I, I think in my own becoming story, I want to be someone that, that does grow into greater humility, someone that has a more realistic picture of who I am and a more realistic picture of who others are. Uh, I prayed over the years, Lord, help me to see this person or help me to see this group like Jesus sees them, not like Kevin sees them, because uh, I won't see them the way you do. And that's what I want. But I think our becoming story is always a story of affection. And I, I, I want my own story in, in the daily practices and habits and things that I do, I want to liturgize myself uh, mm. more and more into growing affections for Christ and God and the kingdom. You know, I mentioned I'm from Louisville. I'm, I'm in central Kentucky. There are a lot of Wildcat fans here and uh, rabid, rabid UK fans. And uh, I'm a pretty big athletics fan for the University of Louisville. <laughs> but it's interesting. No one has ever... My dad never sat me down and gave me a, a lecture, a PowerPoint presentation on why I should follow Louisville sports. Or I've never met a fire-breathing UK fan that was won over to UK uh, for, for intellectual reasons. Rather, we uh, were liturgized into it. I sat on Purvis Ellison's lap when I was a kid. Wow. My, my, uh, we, we built a fire when Louisville played basketball games and football games and the, the smells and the sounds and uh, hearing Paul Rogers on the radio and the postgame show, all those things formed me. And so the older I get, my becoming story, I just want to pay very careful attention to what do I do on a daily basis? What story is mm. carried in those habits? And is that story growing my affection for Christ? Or is it actually unwittingly leading me into affections for something else? It's funny. Uh, I, I think I might have talked about this with with Dave Stone or one of those Southeast guys that I got to go to the Final Four when Never Nervous Purvis won in Dallas, Texas uh, at uh, Reunion Arena 86. in 1986. So I didn't sit sit in his lap or wow. anything like that, but I re- I definitely remember that game. And was it who was it? It was LSU. They didn't, who they beat? Uh, they beat Duke in the finals. It was LSU was in the semis, and I forgot who else was in the semis, but. Was that Auburn, I think? No, it wasn't Auburn. Uh, I'm trying to think who it was. LSU, Duke, Louisville. Yeah, it was. An, I think it was another bigger – was it Kansas? It might have been Kansas. 
It was Kansas. It was Kansas. Okay. I feel like yeah. maybe it was Kansas. I went, you know, it's funny back in 98 or 96. That was whatever year it was Kentucky beat Utah. I went to that final four in San Antonio, Texas sports illustrated. And one of the first pieces of sheets of paper or in a magazine had a picture of the worst seats in the house. I'm like, if you would look really closely, me and my dad were like probably two or three rows right in front. Cause we had those terrible lottery, you know, that they were already starting to turn towards the corporate sponsors, got all the great seats. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we were basically right there, about two rows in front. So, hey, you were in the building. That's that's 100 percent true. So, Kevin, let's just close with this. How would people find out more about you, what you're up to, Asbury? T tell us where we can find out more about those things. You know, I, thank you for asking. Obviously, I could say come to the website. That's you right. know, that's, that's the digital front door. But more important to me than, than the website, come come visit, come visit our come visit our campus, come see our classrooms, come see Hughes Auditorium. We always want people to to visit, and there's something special. It's it's amazing how many students. I say, why do you why did you come to Asbury? And they're like, you know, I, I stepped on campus, and I just knew there was something special about this. Well, on one hand. I, I want them to say, uh, I, I came because I'm playing shortstop, or I'm really excited about your media program, or I really want to be a history major, or, you know, to, to be overseas for a semester would be incredible. And that's why I chose you. So you want those like affiliate hooks. But on the other hand, it is, it's true. Uh, there, there is just something special about this place. And my, my heart is warmed when I hear students say that. And I try to I, I try to write an article every once in a while, just some different outlets, just to hear some things that it's not it's it's Kevin Brown, but it's also how is our school thinking about just some of the uh, the things that that we see in the world around us, and how can we faithfully examine those things, and what might faithful action look like? And so those are things that uh, I just just try to put out as um, if for no other reason to say here's here's a reflection of some of our discussion here at Asbury, whether that's on artificial intelligence or what does Christian unity look like and mm. just a really politically fractured moment, those kinds of things. So, but my my first invitation would always be for, for folks to come. And Jeff, I'm just so glad that, that you chose to come on the 15th. Yeah, well, it is asbury.edu if people want to know. And I will tell you, if we get down there, to, and for my son, we'd probably be good to come. We try to do stuff like that when there's like a basketball game or something going on. But there might be a little pressure, not that you can be personal to every student that visits the campus, but my middle son, Ethan, who's going to Grace, we are close friends with the president there, Drew Flam, who I want to hook yep. you guys up at some point. He's heard nothing but great stuff about you. So if Alex were to go to Asbury and check it out, you know, we need a similar type of setup with the president at Asbury. So just file that away. Do it. Let's do it. <laughs> you can count on it. Kevin, you've been a total treat. I, I This conversation, I always say, if it's for nobody but me, this was great. And I can't emphatically say that enough. This was a great conversation. Did a great work for my soul talking about fun stuff, light stuff, heavier stuff, Asbury, what God's doing. And, and you just seem to me like the one word I can't escape from is faithful. You just seem like a faithful guy and how that's going to play out in every area of your life. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I really appreciate this, Jeff. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.